I've started to discover, the more I've done my work, is that life is friendly and life is conversational. So it's almost like life rises to meet your belief of life in some ways. Mm. And so something really amazing starts to happen when we just start to ask. We start to see how like life, the adventure of life wants to meet us. Welcome to the Vulnerability Challenge. I've set myself the challenge to be more vulnerable in 2020. So every month this year, I'll be taking on a vulnerability challenge set by someone new each time that is wildly out of my comfort zone. I hate to do things alone, so I'm dragging you along for the ride and sharing how they felt and what I learned. I'll also be interviewing someone every episode, exploring what makes them vulnerable too. I believe that sharing intimate stories that we might find embarrassing or painful are in fact the biggest source of connection between us and ultimately give power to ourselves and to others. I invite you to take the challenge too and join me on this journey. Let's get vulnerable. I was sat in my local park during lockdown and started listening to a podcast. It was a conversation with a South African lion tracker and author. I practically inhaled it. I was nodding my head so many times in agreement that other park goers started looking at me strangely. I took notes, I laughed, and when the episode was over, I couldn't stop thinking about the takeaways. So I decided, spontaneously, to send a direct message on Instagram to the lion tracker on a whim. He replied, and here we are. Boyd Varty grew up on Londolozzi Game Reserve in the South African wilderness. Founded more than 90 years ago as a hunting ground, Londolozzi was transformed into a natural reserve in 1973 by Boyd's father and uncle. But it wasn't just a sanctuary for animals. It was also a place for ravaged land to flourish again and for the human spirit to be restored. When Nelson Mandela was released after 27 years of imprisonment, he came to the reserve to recover. Boyd Varty is a conservationist, activist, author, tracker, and storyteller. He has spent the last 10 years refining the art of using wilderness as a place for deep introspection and personal transformation. Without knowing much about me at all, Boyd set me a challenge around authenticity in two parts. Part one was around asking for what you want. You are going to ask without seeking love, approval, or appreciation, he said. You're going to see how you communicate from complete authenticity. You're going to notice how life is when you ask clearly. Part two was about an authentic yes and an authentic no. When you are asked a question, he said, you are going to go into yourself. Slow down and wait for a true yes or no to arise. Answer with clarity and no justification. You will notice how much of our identity of being good or bad is loaded around this. Both parts are a play on authenticity and around noticing yourself and becoming aware of where our motivations come from, how much we want to be liked or seen as good or kind. A bit like my January challenge, I felt this one would split people into two camps. People who find it very hard to ask for what they want, and therefore this challenge would be difficult and necessary, and people who find it very easy to ask for what they want, and therefore might find this challenge not so interesting. People like me. I'm a firm and proactive believer in the don't ask, don't get school of thought. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. But through the process of doing these challenges, I started to notice how I asked. When I do ask, perhaps because of the way I give or the way I was raised, I can come across as demanding and inconsiderate. I needed to learn a better way to ask that also took into consideration the feelings and needs of the other person. I also noticed that I find it much harder to express my gratitude in a beautiful moment, pause and appreciate things, than to ask for something. Why? Why am I always in a constant state of hurtling forwards and very rarely appreciating the present moments? I explore this and so much more in my conversation with Boyd Varty.
the challenge that you set me was the first one that I've had that's in two parts. <laughs> Maybe you could tell me why you decided upon a multi-part challenge. Um, well, one of the things that I was thinking is, you know, I was just asking myself, like, what could make it interesting for you? And I guess that there were sort of two dimensions to it, which just gave it like a little bit of scope and, and different areas to pay attention and different areas to notice things. I'm really interested in like the basics of how we craft our experience of what life has to offer us. And those just seem like two really simple places to jump off and, and generate awareness from. And I think for me, it, like originally when I read it, I thought, oh, that's easy. I get told that I'm very good at asking for things. I'm fairly brave about it. And I believe that I live by this motto of don't ask, don't get. But compounding that, I was also, I believe, raised for autonomy. And so I think that that makes me good at asking for specific things, but it doesn't make me good at asking for help or for emotional support. I'm much better at dealing with other people's problems. I kind of don't want to burden them with my own. I have this thing where I convince myself that my friends are not there to deal with my problems. What's beautiful about it is there's these two dimensions that arise and you could think of it as like two flows of energy. The flow of energy outward, asking for what you want and what, what I would call sort of things of the world, kind of externals. You know, I would like work stuff, um, creating the external life you want, um, creating the channels you want, asking for the connections you want, all of that sort of stuff is really strong. And then there's the secondary piece of like where it starts to get more vulnerable, which is useful on a vulnerability challenge, of where it has to be like things that I'm asking for personally. And, and that's where, as I said, it gets more and more subtle. Some people will have a lot of challenges just asking for the things they want externally. But then you start to identify, and actually I think the most important thing about asking for what you want internally is actually slowing down enough to identify what you need and what you want. And as I said to you when we were talking initially, like when I grew up, the, or the way I grew up was very rugged South African upbringing. And so the whole kind of departure point growing up in the wild out here was like, I can pretty much override any kind of need just by toughing things out. And so the whole, my, like my whole programming was just like, I don't need anything. I'll be fine. And even like from a self-care point of view, like I could sleep on the floor. I could walk around in the hot sun all day and not drink water. It was just like this whole resilience mindset. And the result of that was that I have that gear, but often what I started to find in relationships and what I started to find as I wanted to create more subtle levels is like, I didn't even really know what I wanted and I didn't even really know what to ask for. So then that became sort of an interesting part of the first part of the challenge of being able to ask was to identify what you were actually needing in. And then sort of when, when something like I need, Oh man, I need kind of like a really kind of emotional support. I need someone who sees me. I need someone like then that became very vulnerable things to ask for. Mm, I think I, I'm exactly the same. And, and maybe it's something in this sense of, because we're, we're re I'm thinking of the phrase radical self-reliance. We're so accommodating and so able to deal with any given scenario. It's more about the other person, say in a relationship, it's like, okay, what do they need? How can I shapeshift myself in order to, make sure that they're comfortable and because uh, I'll be fine. I can, I can sit in discomfort and I can deal with whatever's happening because I think maybe I wonder if it plays in for you, but it plays in for me. Nobody asked me if I was comfortable. Oh, absolutely. And no one, like it's not that no one cared. It just wasn't the cultural jump off point in like South Africa at a very difficult time in South Africa's history. And I think we share that kind of, we both come from or have roots in countries that have gone through very difficult times. Yeah. I think there wasn't space for that conversation. You know, when I look back on my childhood and I think about 
you know, why do I find it so difficult to ask emotional questions? And it's because I was never asked about how I was feeling or uh, having to share in that way. It's so it's very new to me as a concept. Like when I was a kid, it was I don't want to say transactional, but it was very much like keep it moving. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we came from my word would be operational, you know, like we're just operational. You got to keep operating, you know. I mean, I remember um, when I first started getting into spaces of personal development and, you know, like we would be sitting in groups and someone would start talking about their process and they would say something like, um, you know, um, as the as the group went on, I started to feel um, some anger coming up. And then I realized that that anger was making me want to uh, isolate the group. I started to feel uh, isolate from the group. I felt some frustration and I wanted to lash out, but I was aware that it was coming out of this feeling of being alone. Um, and I was actually using the lashing out as a defense. And I was sitting there on the other side of the room, just like, <laughs> absolutely astounded that someone had such a complex understanding of that kind of emotionality. For me, it was just like I was sitting there and then I got pissed off. And that, you know, like I didn't have the, I don't, I didn't have any of that understanding of how um, people can gain an understanding and be the awareness in which certain emotionality is occurring. Like we just didn't come from that. And so I really understand it. And there's something, I mean, the thing that strikes me about what you're saying is, I guess that's what we're trying to develop is the skill set that allows you to sink into the goodness. Um, and it's like, it's kind of like a muscle. If it's operational, if we need to handle something, um, we're good. But then building the muscle of allowing, building the muscle of letting the feeling of the moment um, really take you and opening to that that's it really is like building strength in a certain area so the big piece for me right now and the big kind of vulnerability aspect that has been that this whole year has been leading towards I believe is the fact that I've I've found myself in a very new relationship and I've not been in a formal relationship for years and years I'm still in this I independent framework and I'm so used to being on my own and doing everything myself that I've been neglecting and then when I try and ask in a nice way I feel like I'm still asking in a very demanding like I want rather than I think this could be something interesting for us to do I say I want so I'm trying to shift gears into more of a we mindset which I'm struggling with well, I think, I mean, the first thing is that you're onto the most important awareness, which is that, I mean, I just offer this, you're, you're, you're aware that you're in a big transition from being in, a, in this autonomy to starting to bridge into the blend um, that comes in relationship. And then the blend of the masculine feminine dynamic inside of that. And I mean, I think the key thing is, and this is always going to come from me as a tracker, is just to notice. And what happens is, is at, f at first, you know, those, those models of consciousness, like of, at first you'll be unconsciously unconscious. So you won't know that you're always using um, the word I and coming at it from a very individualistic place. You'll just be doing it. Then through the relationship, um, because he'll probably point it out to you, you start to become aware and then you become consciously unconscious which is sort of what i'm hearing you describe now where you don't you don't um you you're still doing it but you're now aware that you're doing it so you're still coming from i but you're watching yourself do it and then with practice that becomes consciously conscious and so you start consciously approaching it saying how should we plan this uh, where would we like to go with this and then as you sit inside of that a lot more, it becomes unconsciously conscious where you're just, you've established that more collective mindset in yourself. So I think that you're really doing it just by generating that kind of awareness around it and then wanting to continue uh, to be evolving together with someone. You know, the wanting it is obviously critical. 
what have you found as someone that's quite similar but has also done a lot of work to be the difficult thing that you still find to ask for? I have noticed an evolution in my capacity to ask for sometimes external things because I guess in some ways I have, I've gotten much better with it now, but initially out of that same self-reliant mindset, I, I, one of my worst things in the world would be to impose on anyone. Um, and to, and actually the, the feeling was always that, you know, I don't actually need it. I can get by without it. But I realized that by asking for things, it's, I could get by without it. But when I asked, I opened myself to a very different experience. I became an architect of the experiences that I wanted. Um, and so I had to do a fair amount of of work there. And the other thing that has, that came out of it, you know, asking for very specific external things is I realized how much latent uh, backlog of potential love and kindness and support the universe for lack of a better word or God or the experience of being alive wanted to give me. Um, if I actually just showed up and asked for it specifically and you know, one thing that comes to mind is I met this, I was taken by a mutual friend to stay with this uh, couple up in upstate New York. And they were, they were quite a bit older than me. They were fairly, they were people with profile and they were incredibly private. And so I went up there with a mutual friend the first time. And when I met them, I just saw and saw the way they were living. Um, it was just so clear to me that they were mentors to me, that the way they were living was so inspiring as artists, as creators. And so whenever I would go to New York, this was the first like really big one for me. And I knew they were private. I didn't want, had all this, I don't want to impose stuff. I would just text, I would send a text. And I remember it being like my heart kind of racing saying, um, I would love to come and see you. Can I come and visit you again? And then I would like wait by the phone and they would always write back. We can't wait to see you. Um, and spending time with them radically changed the direction of my life and the image, uh, of what my life could be and opened my life to new pathways. And so, and I, and I really realized that I could have, you know, I could have stayed in New York just fine. I could have lived my life without it. And I, I wouldn't have known what I was missing. So it showed me and the love that I received there and the way it opened me, how much was waiting on the other side of, you know, the simplicity of saying, can I come and visit you? Um, and then just out of that experience, it started to open it to like, where else is that going on? Um, and, and of course, where else am I assuming that assuming where people are at, uh, you know, cause my idea was I would be an imposition to them. Turns out they actually loved having me. So I just started to see all these assumptions I was carrying you know, I sit down on the, on the bus and there's this, you know, radiant old woman sitting next to me. And if I'm assuming that she doesn't want to talk to me or she doesn't want to be bothered, you know, I don't know. And so until I can say, Hey, do you feel like having a chat? (laughs) You know, and then it opens up this whole door. So I had to get a lot better at that, which you are already quite good at. Well, I don't know if I'm quite good at it. And I think imposing and being a burden is a big piece for me that I realized for the first time properly the extent of on New Year's at the beginning of this year when I was in Topanga in LA with my friend Lauren Taus and we went to a sound healing and my big kind of takeaway in the morning when I was we were driving back to Venice to her house and I was sat there trying to piece my thoughts together and the culminating thought was, well, you know, I do all of these things and I sit on the fringes and I observe and I try and always bring something to the table. And I believe that my, my friends aren't my friends because of who I am. They're my friends because of what I'm hosting and offering and creating and doing. And, you know, for my birthday, I have to organize a big dinner and it has to look like X and it has to be really cool. And I have to pay for it because, you know, no one's just going to come to celebrate me because I'm a burden. And she like stopped the car and turned around to me 
and she said, no more duty. And I said, what do you mean? She said, our friendship is not based on duty. You need to stop cleaning my house. (laughs) Because what I'd been doing, because I'd been staying at her house for like two weeks, is I felt this need, I owed her, right? In my classic um, operational, like Serbian way, I I knew that I owed her something for the fact that I was staying there free of charge. And so I kept cleaning and organizing and cooking for her, which I enjoy doing anyway. But she said, that's not, I'm friends with you, not because you come and clean my house or because you cook for me or because you organize or because you're going to host a dinner and pay for it. I'm friends with you because of you. And if it takes me stripping away all of these duties that you feel like you need to do for me in order for you to see that and sit in an uncomfortable space where you're not doing anything for me, then so be it. No more duty. I get it. I mean, because imagine you pick up this beautiful newborn baby, right? And you, you're staring at it and it would be impossible for you having your mind and your heart to think, well, this baby's not offering anything around the house. I guess it has no value. (laughs) You know, it's like the the presence itself is the presence, that aliveness, that being itself is innately one of the most beautiful and valuable things in the world. Um, So I get, I mean, but I get it. I mean, and and this is why these challenges are great because, and this is why what your project and what you're doing is so amazing because, awareness is what creates transformation, you know? So just an awareness, like I'm uncomfortable when I have to receive, I'm uncomfortable when I have to really identify what I want. I'm uncomfortable when I feel like I'm not bringing value to something. I'm uncomfortable. We're just starting to know that. And then, so the first thing is awareness. And then the second part is always like making a different choice. And that's what starts to free us. I'm starting to like, realize when you go over to Lauren's house, um, you know, you can actually just let her take care of you and say like, when I'm here, I'm just going to receive. And I'm just going to try that and see how it goes and trust that in the receiving, there will be a kind of giving. So, I mean, this is how we learn. And this is why putting yourself consciously into these situations that you're doing, it, it helps you notice. And the noticing starts to see where the blockage is, but also where a different option, where a different choice might be. And, and then that starts to shape life. I mean, rolling back to your earlier question, I also think, you know, a crazy one for me on a personal level was just asking for help in a lot of ways, which was like, I don't know how to do this. You know, can you help me? So one of the things that happened to me when I was very young, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was running a team of trackers and safari guides. And there were a lot of guys on the team um, who were older than me and who'd been there longer than me, but I was running the team. So I got into that classic um, young masculine sort of place of trying to show, trying to give the show of being utterly embodied, confident and clear on what was going on. And so I didn't have the ability to even, I didn't even know that I didn't know what I was doing. So I would go into meetings and fire off instructions and try and look commanding. And everyone sitting in the meeting could be like, "Mm, he sort of knows what he's doing, but he doesn't fully know. And when I slowed down enough and when I started doing the work, I realized, hey, wait, you know, what I need is support. What I need is guidance. What I need is someone to help me. And so how about this? Like walk into the meeting and go like, hey, everyone, here's what we need to do. I don't really know how to do this. Uh, what do you think? And just in that like softening to the fact that I didn't have to be perfect, I didn't have to know, and asking, how should we do this? Then a strange thing would happen. You know, The feedback would start to come. I realized that there were great ideas in the room. And in the relationship, in the working it out together, often I did know what to do. I wasn't pretending anymore. And then just not leaving it in an abstract Like if I am going to be running a group, I need support in the following ways. I need to know that you're going to be there when you say you're going to be there. Um, I need you to help me with the following things. I need you to really help me with scheduling how to do this. I need you to. And so being more specific gave the other person someone somewhere to go. Yeah. And that's a, that's a sign of much better leadership when you are able to ask for support and then you empower your team because they feel like they're really 
contributing rather than taking orders. I wanted to go into part two of your challenge. It was about the concept of an authentic yes and an authentic no. Again, for me, I find the saying yes and no relatively easy. And I do think I say no to things that I don't have capacity for. But the bit that was the challenge for me was the slowing down and the pausing and waiting for the yes or no to arise. And I think my question is really around how do you pause in really hectic moments when there's a lot happening? And I imagine this must happen for you in the wild in order to know what the right decision is? Well, the first thing that I would say is that with practice, it starts to become, you start to get more and more in touch with it. And so when I first started allowing an authentic yes or an authentic no to arise, it was going too fast. And what I found is that there were certain people who I had weaknesses to and and an unauthentic yes would just pop up. Anyone who I felt like, was in a state of of need of some kind. I was I'm I'm weak to someone who feel who feels like they have a need or they're suffering in some ways. So the first was just like noticing myself getting it wrong a few times because I w- I was too rushed on it and then noticing that there were certain types of questions and certain type of people who I had a story about which would affect my authentic yes or no. And then realizing that my story about them was just my story about them. I didn't actually know what was going on in their life. So that was, those were the two things. And then as that started to happen, I guess I realized that I could set the pace on things, even in the most hectic situations, actually slowing down started to, to create the calm in the whole situation. And so taking the time to like take a beat or two and letting the answer come to me. I really believe that presence um, has an effect on time. And as you you know, in terms of the wild, like I know that if I'm guiding a, a group of people in nature and let's say, for example, a big bull elephant suddenly appears and comes walking towards the group, my capacity for presence with that moment actually creates time in the whole moment. And I've seen, I've seen myself do that. Then my energy slows down what's happening around me. It, it has an effect on the group I'm guiding, and it actually has an effect on the animal. And so the key is to when someone asks you for something, hold, hold, go into presence, and then rather than just answering, let the answer come. And it's just practice. I'm so you know pleased to hear that you don't have an issue with no because it's so difficult for so many people. But one of the things that happens is a lot of people say, well, you know, if I just, if I said no, you know, I don't want to be selfish. But what happens is, is when you develop an authentic no, when you start to say no to someone else, you start to say yes to yourself and you start to build up energy because you're not involved in things out of a sense of obligation out of a sense of wanting to belong, out of a sense of wanting to be liked. You're not involved in any of that stuff. The things that you are involved in are the things you genuinely want to be in. And you start to build up more and more energy um, out of having that really authentic no and out of having that really authentic yes. People start to feel that authenticity on you. And that energy that you start to build up ultimately ends up in more of a capacity to give. Whereas, (laughs) strangely, if you say, if if you're not saying no, if you're saying yes to things you don't want to be involved in, you start ending up feeling a bit burnt out and run down. You start ending up being at things you don't actually want to be at, and you start ending up having less to give. And so it's a very strange discipline that seems like selfishness at first or seems self-centered at first, but in my experience, it's quite contradictory. It ends up with a lot more to give. So what I would say to people listening is just practice noticing when someone asks you um, how fast it comes, the yes or the no, and how authentic it is. And if you can then slow down, just grab a moment in between, look at them and wait for the answer. And just, just being in that practice is going to generate a pretty amazing things and it will change your life. Mm. You mentioned in, in the email that you sent me that we say yes sometimes because we want to be liked. And so my question is, 
why do we want to be liked so much and how do we still say no and be liked yeah i mean it's it's such a deep question um we want to belong sometimes we think that by being a certain way and and these are all little dynamics of the ego by being a certain way um by smiling at someone by saying hey i just wanted to ask you something um you know we have all these little techniques that we develop over over time and over life the misguided techniques of belonging uh, we think that the, these are the things that are going to enjoin us to people and help us to be liked and cared for and and we need that that feeling of being a part of of belonging and we need that because it's not deeply established in ourselves we're still looking to the external to to help us feel validated in some ways and so the more that we do our own work of coming home to a solid true authentic place inside of ourselves a place that is whole rather than perfect a place where we where we can hold uh, a masculine and a feminine dynamic that allows us to learn continuously who we are rather than having to be something great immediately a place that lets us have a process of evolution we start to come home more to ourselves and we need less the external validations and we become more full and we become more authentic and that is like the core of all inner work and then you start to realize all the things that you were doing to try and make yourself something to try and get yourself somewhere externally whereas everything that you needed it was already in you it, and it's a strange thing like the more authentic you become the more everything starts to flow to you the more people show up authentically around you the more you are playing the sort of veneer game the more you find yourself in that world so it's such a deep need for all of us to be liked um to be loved to belong to feel connected but when we abandon ourselves to get that we get further away from ourselves when we say yes when we want to say no when we say no when we want to say yes when we ask without clarity to try and sort of you know enjoy ourselves with the person uh, enmesh ourselves emotionally try and be liked all of those things are trying it's a it's a misguided attempt to get the thing we actually want and it actually takes us further from ourselves I think this process of saying yes to things that we don't want and are maybe inauthentic to us can lead us on a path which is my favorite concept that I heard of yours of the path of not here and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the path of not here because I'm obsessed I'm not the world's most spiritual person and I don't believe that the the cosmos is moving me specifically but I do feel that when I'm doing the right thing and it comes from a place of within me as a choice and not because of external expectations or wanting to prove something to someone just as a raw unique idea to myself that I believe is my USP I see things start coming into my path that function like oh this is the, and it makes sense as it's happening I'm not surprised anymore I'm like yeah this means I'm doing the right thing and when I'm doing the wrong thing and I'm doing something because I think other people want me to do it or it will make me money or whatever it might be um there's so many it's like roadblock after roadblock yeah i mean that is like literally well, firstly i i think that the <laughs> i think the universe is moving you just like having known you over the last little while like you what you're talking about is kind of the flow of spirit and you i mean i know that language sounds a little um woo but it's we really do feel that when we are when something it's kind of like Eckhart Tolle says it like this when you are looking for yourself through what you do um you will always create from ego because you're trying to find out who am i in the world and what can i hold on to to say i'm something in the world when you are coming out of a place of pure knowing that this is what you should be doing you know he would say that's out of a place of pure presence out of a place of pure guidance and you're not looking for yourself you have the entire energy of presence with you as opposed to the limited e- energy of ego and that's where you start to feel just doors opening like there you know where everyone says i'm in a total flow with things things are lining up 
And it's because you're not trying to make yourself something through it. It's for the pure act of creativity, for the pure act of the way life wants to create, for the pure act of how something comes in into form. And, and it's not about you. You're actually just a vessel for it there. That's where the real magic is. And, and all of, you know, in terms of the path of not here, like my whole thing as a tracker who, as an animal tracker who transitioned into a kind of um, life tracker was to just pay enough attention to know when it's coming through you from that place and to pay enough attention to see where you're coming from and to pay enough attention to know what your motivations are moment to moment and in that way continue to generate more presence rather than more ego. And so that continues to be and I think will probably be my lifelong uh, mission and work, you know, just to keep going there. Wow, it's all very, very true. What do you recall as being the moment that you felt the most vulnerable? I mean, I've been afraid and and felt my own vulnerability in the face of like incredibly dangerous external situations. Another creature is trying to eat you. Um, but if now that I'm talking to you, one of the most vulnerable I have ever felt is in a relationship where my, I was overseas, uh, I was in New York, I was in a new relationship and my work in America had not really developed yet. And so I was in uh, this phase of like, you know, when you, when you're trying to build something and it's not quite happening and the work isn't quite there yet. So you, you're not generating. And I was sort of, in this relationship with this really like wonderful and, and together person. And I was in a phase of, of like not quite having a, my career moving how I wanted it to move. And as a man that just felt like absolutely terrifying to me to, to not be able to show up like fully, um, fully on top of everything, driving, knowing where I'm going, creating what I want, just more like, I don't really know where this is going. If I can get this done, very difficult place so you know give me a charging lion over over that any day yeah and it's the sort of place where everybody asks you as the immediate first question what do you do what do you do yeah absolutely this is the it's and yeah i felt incredibly uncertain of myself and vulnerable inside of that and was at that phase of my life not able to just say you know i'm feeling incredibly vulnerable because of where I'm at right now, um, I just wanted to shut any kind of feeling of patheticness away. So I hope that I've evolved a bit and now that I would be able to take a little bit better care of myself inside of an, an experience like that. Um, but I would say that was a, that was a very big one. And the feeling that if I wasn't doing anything, um, you know, how could anyone like accept me or want to be with me or any of that type of stuff? Yeah, I'm exactly the same. And so I'm curious, with all the work that you have done, is there anything that you are currently still afraid of? I think, you know, if you're an artist and you're a writer, there's always that sense of, are you creating? Are you generating? And I would say that there's some, there's some fuel there at Artistically, I feel a, a certain fuel to create things, to put things into a world, into the world. In terms of that bigger meta mission that we were talking about, I feel a tremendous drive inside of me to serve, and I actually think that those are both healthy expressions. They they, they have a place. I would say right alongside those is is kind of the presence of. My father, when I was young, my father was just incredibly driven. And I often say to people that I grew up in a cult of doing. Like in my house, it was like, you know, if you, if you were sitting idly around, you could feel the sort of unspoken judgment permeating you. And my father was just such a huge generator. And so I, next to sort of a healthy expression of the desire to, to create and to serve is probably still a very deep fear when I feel like I'm not optimized. There was this idea in that the psychologist Carl Jung had 
that basically people are left pathers and right pathers. And um, the left path would be into the structures of culture. So, you know, you become a lawyer, you become a doctor, you get into the publishing industry, you get into one of those. And the sort of life then provides you the structure forward. And I've always been an avid right pather. Right pathers are people who make up what they want to do in the world and they make it up by following a feeling inside of them. And sort of the challenge of being a right pather is that there is no structure for you. So I, I guess where I've had my deepest struggles has been in this deep sense of wanting to do something in the world and not always knowing the structure out of which to do it. And I feel like that has subsided a lot, but I still have periods now. Um, and, it, and where it really hits me even sometimes is after I've put out a ton of work and you go into that sort of in-breath phase, the minute I go into the in-breath in phase and I have space, I should just rest and sort of recharge this old fear of you're not generating comes up. You're not doing enough. You're not putting enough into the world. You're going to get ungrounded. You're going to get aimless. And so I have a lot more awareness around it, but it is still a place that can trip me up. It's still a place where a lot of, you know, fear and agitation starts to arise in me. That's incredible because I feel exactly the same. Like I would always rather be super busy than have nothing to do. I find it very difficult to sit in the pauses between work and fully rest. My other question was going to be, as a man that does so much, what do you want to be remembered for? And is there something that ties all the disparate things that you do together? Because I think that helps me when I worry that I'm spreading myself too thin or that I'm I don't really know where all of this is going and what is it that I'm creating. I have this meta narrative that I discovered for myself of storytelling where I'm realizing that everything that I do is actually still connected to this much larger mission. Well, absolutely. I mean, I live my life through a whole lot of different expressions, whether it's writing, whether it's speaking, whether it's running ceremony work, whether it's running tracking retreats in South Africa, whether it's the work that I do in the field of bringing literacy to the most rural villages, um, whether it is the creation of a futuristic African village that we're trying to turn our safari operation into, build a model of sustainable living. So there's all these different expressions, but the one that is absolutely underlying it all for me is to support a transformation in consciousness. And that can happen through you know, the development of models, the creation of stories, to me, I want to be involved in the healing of the planet. Uh, I've always thought that a shift in, in the restoration of the planet will come out of a shift in human consciousness. And so any act of healing, any time a person comes to more authenticity in themselves, I've, and I can support that, be a part of that, whether it's coaching, whether it's providing an experience, I feel like then I'm on on mission and I'm in service of that greater mission, although it's coming out in a lot of different and diverse ways. Mm. I mean, I used to think of it as I live in a village and that village is called the world. And I, I actually started to think of it as a village consciousness because everywhere I went, I started to find myself in the same consciousness, in the same frequency, surrounded by the same kind of energy although it was expressing itself in very different, different ways, I'm not talking about anything homogenized. It was just this shared emergent value of wanting to reconnect with the earth, simplicity, um, exper pure experience, a more alive way of living. Uh, and one of the things that I was thinking about after our conversation is there's all these different doorways into the authentic life and vulnerability has to be one of the widest doorways into much more authenticity. But when people start to touch the authentic life, you know, one of the things that I see is people who become very authentic stop wanting stuff. A very deep feeling of enough starts to flow into you. They become more interested in experience than like attaining things. There's a natural inclination towards community, creativity, nature, and service. And what I love about it is any person who steps into that authenticity becomes a kind of tuning fork almost. They start to, just the way, it's, I think of it as a kind of activism, just the way they are living 
starts to tell everyone around them it's possible to live differently. It's possible to live more deeply. I'm sure you've seen this as you've gone on this vulnerability journey. As you start to open, it just starts to cascade this parade of opening doors around you and conversations and people feeling like what you're up to is something I want to be a part of. Mm. I'm really interested in something that you said, which is that you're searching for healing, but healing implies that something went wrong with us as a society that we need to be healed from. Where do you think we went wrong or built built up these things that require a healing? There's two types of trauma to my mind, things that happened that shouldn't have happened and things that didn't happen that should have happened. And that's kind of in the category of personal trauma. So you can look at your own life and probably find things in either category in your own life. Then on top of that comes a kind of cultural trauma that we don't even know we have. And the way that I would describe that is the culture that we, that most of us live in Western sort of modern culture. What it does is it presents to you continuously uh, through a barrage, a set of ideals. And it says to you, in order to be happy and fulfilled, you have to achieve these ideals. And it is relentless from the time you're very young. And then built into that is you either achieve the ideals and you realize, well, that actually isn't what fulfills us and makes us happy. And you know, you only need to coach your first couple of millionaires and billionaires to realize that the feelings, the emptiness, and what feels lacking is exactly the same. Or you never achieve the ideals and you live with this constant feeling. And again, if you coach hundreds of people, you'll find it. You, this constant feeling of, I'm not quite enough. I haven't quite made it. I haven't quite got there. And another way of saying it would be in a society where the individual self is disconnected from the greater whole the search for meaning is reduced to how am I doing in comparison? And so it's this constant comparative dynamic that becomes a kind of trauma, either the trauma of ideals, the trauma of actual trauma, you something happened that shouldn't have happened, something didn't happen that should have happened, uh, or the trauma of constant comparison. And, and those, funnily enough, those are structured into our very uh, psyche, and they are structured into our ego. So there's just this strange fee feeling that millions of people are living with, and it expresses as an anxiety, as a kind of depression, as just an underlying feeling that I'm not quite getting it right. Everyone else seems to be getting it right. I'm not. And so some of the, now in a natural system, so if you live out here in the wild where I am, it's the opposite of a comparative dynamic is a relational dynamic. So every day when I go out into the wild here, I actually discover more of myself, not through comparison, but through relation with the river. You know, the river is a friend to me. The trees I know personally, the intelligence that flows through a natural system, I feel like I'm a part of it. The wisdom of the animals, that my respect for their resilience, these interlocking concentric patterns of intelligence that you call nature, I feel myself as a part of that. And that brings me into connection. That brings me into relation. And that is the remedy for this isolation, comparative, comparison and ideal, ideal sort of trauma that we're all suffering from. So when I'm talking about healing, I, I see the things that I've described are what I have seen through doing hundreds and hundreds of sessions both coaching people, both uh, counseling people, and, and sitting for people in, in hundreds and hundreds of ceremonies. And, and the thing about it, T, is that, um, you know, a lot of people don't even know what, they don't even know the scope of how that has taken them. Um, and so the minute you have ideals, there is a part of you that will always be judging you against that ideal that was put in you. It's kind of an imprint from the culture. And so your, your own ego starts to judge you against that relentlessly. And 
and the and the reason that it's important to the bigger picture of and I'll try and land a plane here, but the reason it's the reason it's really important for the bigger picture of healing our relationship with na- nature is that so long as that is alive inside of you, that feeling of not enough, we are endlessly trying to get something, achieve something, buy something, accessorize with something, or do something to fill that place in us. Uh, and that maintains this very deep sense of consumerism that we are living with. And so part of the shift to me that has to happen is when people get more filled up, they're not going to want so much stuff. And that's going to start to change our relationship with nature. Capitalism plays such a big part. And the way that capitalism has filtered into our society and something like Instagram, which is a platform of, as a young woman, I feel, of constant comparison just what you're saying. I mean, Instagram to me, I, they told me I had to get on it to build my profile and I recently just got off it. Um, and, and now like I have someone who will post pot. If I do podcasts, they'll post them, but having it on my phone, it was like any moment of any day you could tune in and you could look at those images and, and the sort of subliminal messages was like, look, look how much better life is happening somewhere else. Like, look how much better it is somewhere else. Look how much happier people are somewhere else. And the sort of implicit in that is like, where you are is not where you should be. What's scary is I think that you and I are of a generation where, like, even when we are being addicted to our phones, we know of a sort of a time we weren't addicted. We, we, when we were growing up, we weren't. And so now we at least know this is bad. But the generations to come are going to grow up without even knowing it's bad, it's going to be so normal. Um, and that, that comparative dynamic is really the most uh, slowly erosive thing to what I would call living with the spirit of who you are. You know, you're, you're a, a being full of spirit and the discovery of your authentic path is like the bringing forth of a very unique set of gifts um, that you have. And, and strangely, some of those gifts will come out of the traumas you had when you were young that I was talking about. So none of it is bad and things that have happened have formed you. And if you're just in the comparison to these everly <laughs> curated ideals, it, it erodes you of your spirit. And I think that's what one of the things that we're suffering with that we don't even know we're suffering it with is like a loss of spirit. And that's why the ceremony work is uh, it, it can be a place that can be done in a lot of different ways, but it, it, at least it is a place of spirit. And when people get in that, that group together and they sit in that circle and people start being able to go under the pretense of modern life, pretending like you're perfect all the time, oh man, that's where we remember, remember how to be people again. Like it's like a deep remembering. Ceremony work is always remembering to remember the things that are unique to you is what makes you interesting and exciting. And if you're just trying to compare to other people, then you're copying. And I think what um, the beginning of the process of this pandemic taught me is that there are two different ways of being, being in contribution and being in consumption. And I think we've been taught through things like Instagram and capitalism to consume. And we can go our whole lives just consuming and taking information that we've been told, go to this school, study this subject, work here, listen to this. And then we have no idea how to contribute anymore. And so when a moment like this pandemic comes along, I was noticing among my friends that actually the people that know how to contribute and know how to, as you say, create from nothing, um, we're having a really good time. (laughs) We're sort of thriving and really enjoying the process of having the freedom to continue contributing and you can only contribute in a way that's unique to you and I don't think we ask ourselves that question enough of how can I contribute what is something I can do that nobody else can do that's uniquely mine rather than just consuming all the time and to build on what you're saying you know one of the things that I learned living in the tree was part of the the problem with constantly consuming stuff is that it takes up the bandwidth in which you would have been in empty space where you would have been imagining 
it literally takes up the space of imagination. And, it, and so instead of sitting there with a, in a kind of open, aware emptiness where your mind would naturally start to daydream and think about things, and that's imagination then becomes the home out of which creativity comes. Instead, you're looking at like people around the world, different handbags and people doing yoga and, and people with better lives. And you know what I mean? It's like it's taking up that space of imagination. And, and I, think, I think what we're suffering with, as you, and as creative people, we know this, is like, man, we're suffering a crisis of imagination because the stuff sucks up the space in which you would have just played with things, tried things, been bored, not known what to do. And then like something would have started to come through. <laughs> I never thought about it like that, but it's so true. We're not being encouraged to imagine because it's all kind of on our phone. We're just scrolling through stuff. But can you just, for people listening that don't know what you're talking about when you say, when I lived in the tree. I've always been fascinated by the archetype of the mystic in nature. Why are there over 40,000 accounts of anyone who is interested in the mystery going to be alone in nature? And so I wanted to go and spend uh, some time absolutely alone. And I ended up doing 40 days and 40 nights because that's how long uh, Jesus, who I consider an interesting mystic, went into the desert for by himself. And so I lived in this beautiful ebony tree on the banks of a river uh, in the wild eastern part of South Africa, up in this treehouse, which was essentially just a wooden platform up in a tree. And I lived for six weeks alone. And you had food? I had, I took food with me. I had like a, like kind of like a trommel full of food and water out the river. And I did a, I actually did a podcast from the tree every day, which I would go and drop in this uh, little tree mailbox and my sister would go and fetch it and upload it for me. It was probably the most profoundly enriching six weeks I've had in as long as I can remember. And, you know, I do think what I discovered was that where your attention goes, your life goes. If you put your attention on living alive things, you become more alive. And I discovered very deeply this incredible intelligence running through the natural world. And then what starts to happen as you're in solitude alone, becoming more still, is you start to absolutely know in some ways you are a part of that intelligence. And I think that's why the mystics went to nature to merge themselves with that intelligence that you could call aliveness, the stream of life, the audible life stream, the Tao, the Lagos, God, the frequency of the unseen, whatever you want to call it. But that, that was, that's what I mean when I say in the tree. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love the tree. Um, I wanted to ask you what I've been asking everyone, which is a set of quickfire uncomfortable questions. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Hit me. Give me three reasons why you are lovable. I am lovable because I am present. Uh, and I bring that presence to people. I'm lovable because I'm kind. And I'm lovable because I harmonize. Uh, I try and harmonize wherever I go. Harmonize with people. Mm, it's beautiful. They say that what you resist persists. What do you think that you resist the most? I find this one always uh really tricky i resist my <laughs> i resist my mission in certain areas and i don't know why i will find sometimes i'm resistant to having to show up although i know absolutely my work is to show up and so what i find is like um I, even when someone calls me and says hey boyd would you come and speak at this thing weirdly although I know speaking about these things is part of my mission, weirdly, often my first impulse is, oh, no, I don't want to go. I'm going to have to stand on stage. I'm going to have to catch a flight. And all of this like noise about why I shouldn't go comes up. And then the deeper part of me always overrides it. But I can't tell you why I'm initially resistant to the things I actually want. And I've had to learn to, to actually catch that and realize like, I'll probably try and undo myself we should have some strategies to push through to the truth that I know that I actually want to be there. And when I'm actually up and talking, I feel amazing. I feel proud that I have when I've done it. I feel like I've contributed, but always the initial, my initial reaction to everything is always like, no, I want to be alone. 
Who in your life would you like to connect to more? I've recently had a big breakthrough with my mother. I feel like her and I are so much closer. I would say that I'm on the threshold of being able to open much more deeply uh, into kind of romantic relationship. In a strange way, I feel in a way that I haven't in a long time, I feel like I'm actually ready to be open to that kind of work. And I have someone who I've had a relationship with, but I feel like it's deepening and I, and I would actually really like it too. Why do you think you've held yourself back from that in the past? You know, I I've, I've, have felt a tremendous amount of responsibility. I feel a responsibility for the other person. I feel a responsibility for trying to hold their heart. And I've always felt like I had something really important to do. And then I would feel this kind of need on me. And it just ended up feeling like work I wasn't willing to do or haven't been willing to really do, you know, to be actually be open to that and present to it and do what was necessary. I, I felt much more focused on what I was personally creating in the world. So I was probably in more of an eye space and feeling more open now to something else. Is there anyone you'd like to apologize to? And if so, what for? Uh, last year, what I still need to apologize for is last year I was moving way too fast. Like literally I was moving geographically too fast, but I was also moving too fast inside of myself and I was a little ungrounded in a few places. And I don't think I was, uh, there were a few relationships where I don't feel like I was actually present in the way that I should have been. Uh, and so there's probably a few people on that list who, who found me to be scattered and a little ambiguous and a little here and then gone in a way that was probably didn't feel good for them and it didn't feel good for me either uh, now I just have to go and you know, close those loops with some integrity which is scary mm. my last question is because I love this question what's the best constructive feedback someone has given you and how did you put it into practice I touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, one of the best pieces I got was from a mentor of mine who we had, he'd been mentoring me for about coming up two and a half years. And he eventually just started to bring my attention to places where I was under the assumption that I should always know how to do things. And I was acting out of that very deeply held belief that I should know and I should lead from that knowing and I should always step forward out of a very knowing place. The only problem was I didn't know. And so there was, a, there was an act on me and there was a place of facade on me and people could feel it in my energy field. You know, where, where you, can, you know when you can feel someone like wanting a kind of authority that they actually don't have. And so when he said that to me, he said, you don't have the authority and you don't know what you're doing. Actually, just the saying it became the doorway into realizing that I didn't know to lead. You don't always have to know. In fact, the way to lead is to say, I don't know. Let's do this anyway. It happened to me in my sort of early 20s, but it was it absolutely transformed me out of being uh, a very a boy trying to pretend to be a man into my doorway into like really what I would think of as like good masculine leadership. And I think if we can change the ways of leadership, then to your previous point, we can change the way that we're treating each other and ourselves and nature. Absolutely. And, you know, being a South African, we, we always have Mandela as a kind of marker of what one, the effect that one great leader can have. And I always think to myself, you know, Mandela totally changed the direction of our country. But for all we know, it might have been his grandmother who had a profound influence on him or his mother or, you know, an aunt or someone made him who he was. And so that leadership traveled into him and then him into the, the country. And so we never know the effects that our presence can have on someone else. And I always hold that when I think, no act of leadership, no act of service is ever too small because you don't know how it's going to travel over time. And I think that 
doing what you're doing and having the courage to share it and be as open as you've been uh, is exactly the sort of thing that can start to open doorways for other people to go on their own journey into more vulnerability, into more authenticity. And we don't know where that goes. And it's not, it can be our journey, but it, it's always about we. It's always about what our journey can offer to the, the greater collective. And that is certainly worth work worth doing. And I think to that point, I have a tendency of always wanting to know, well, what is the exact outcome for this quantitatively? Like what will happen? How many people can I help? And this podcast is a, is a experience of letting go and saying, here is my intention. I'm putting it out into the world. If anyone wants to take it and shape shift it into something that works for them, cool. But I'm not holding myself accountable to exactly how that's going to look on the other side which is something I usually would do yeah and I think that's what you're describing is so the work of the artist you know we do our 50 percent which is to create what our integrity knows to create what we feel called to what we're inspired by and then let it go and then the other 50 percent of what happens to it is what other people do with it and 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 actually like when the arrow leaves the bow it's for God to do uh, with it what what she will on the positive note of letting go and more hope for the future thank you so much for talking to me and setting me my challenge um, and kicking off season two of my podcast thank you so much for having me on it's been great to chat with you and to learn about your journey and yeah it'll be cool to find uh, other ways to collaborate as time goes on and to get you out here at some stage. Yes, I look forward to it. Beautiful tea. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this month's vulnerability challenge. This podcast is an open invitation to join me on this journey by doing the challenges too modifying them or submitting new ones directly to me on Instagram. You can find me on at Tamborich, that's at T-A-M-B-U-R-I-C, where we can support each other and swap experiences because we can all be each other's accountability buddies. Let's get vulnerable.